0: Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 61. In today's episode, we continue the epic transition from Parkland Hospital to Air Force One and the ensuing trip back to Andrews Air Force Base. We cover the time on the plane and a number of epic and related events, including the moment when Robert Kennedy heard the news about his brother. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 61 of JFK The Enduring Secret. Hickory Hill was where Bobby and Ethel Kennedy lived. It was the name of a beautiful Civil War-era home that was located just outside of D.C. in McLean, Virginia. Bobby had purchased the home from his brother Jack in 1957 in a fitting transition as both moved up the political ladder in Washington. It was beautiful, and it was situated close enough for Robert to commute back and forth from home to the downtown offices of the Justice Department. It was a fitting home for a Kennedy with its lush location and old-world elegance, and it came with its own history, too. In 1941, prior to the Kennedys' ownership, it became the home of a newly appointed United States Supreme Court Justice, Robert H. Jackson. It was a fitting place for the large and growing family of Bobby and Ethel Kennedy, who would eventually have 11 children. They were good Catholics, all right. On Wednesday of that week, just two days before the assassination, Bobby had celebrated his 38th birthday, His brother was the most powerful man in the world. By virtue of that connection, his official role as the Attorney General of the United States may have placed him in the second most powerful role in the country, and certainly one of the most powerful men in the world. That year, it was still warm enough in northern Virginia on the 22nd of November to have lunch outside around the pool in the back of Hickory Hill. Bobby and Ethel and others were gathered to enjoy what surely would have been one of the last good weather days before old Jack winter began to set in. The world had its challenges and the Kennedy men had already faced down some of the most dangerous moments in history that had occurred during the latter part of the 20th century. The Cuban Missile Crisis had brought the Soviet Union and the United States dangerously close to a nuclear war. These two men had skillfully avoided the annihilation that would have taken place and that surely would have affected the entire world and the course of human history as we know it. The ramifications of that to the story of the JFK assassination are already set with actions already in motion. Actions that may have taken JFK's life, and in the end, maybe Bobby's too. But on that November day, a lunch was celebratory as the tumult of the world was secondary to the height of the political perch that these two men enjoyed, and the extraordinary power and influence that came with it, and the power that These two extraordinary men were now wielding as the country and the world barreled toward a new era, and just decades away from a new millennium. Old thinking was giving away to new thinking, but it was accompanied by a terrible gnashing of the teeth culturally and a terrible dose of underlying violence that would define the 1960s as the decade that cradled the bloody pivot of our souls in this country. As they sat eating lunch, the phone would ring. It was J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI. Ethel would answer and then quickly turn it over to Bobby. In a terse call, he would inform Bobby Kennedy that the president had been shot, but that they had very little details on what was happening or how bad the wound was. In typical Hoover style, he would offer no personal comment, and the call would end abruptly. Instantly, Bobby Kennedy was running on adrenaline. He knew his brother had been shot, but he wasn't sure what the outcome was. He was upstairs in a dash now at the Hickory Hill house, and he was trying to get himself dressed to go to Dallas. There were pictures of the family upstairs all over, and they were on the walls of this beautiful home. He was staring at them and into them. There was all sorts of family history portrayed in those pictures, including some with his oldest brother, Joe Kennedy Jr., who had died in World War II, and there were pictures of his sister Kathleen Kennedy as well. She, too, had already passed from this earth. While he was trying to dress, his wife Ethel had made her way upstairs, and shortly after that came John McCone, a trusted Kennedy confidant who had been chosen to run the CIA after the firing of Alan Dulles in the midst of the Bay of Pigs fiasco. McCone was visiting with Bobby that day at Hickory Hill. He would enter the room and ask Bobby if he knew, yet, how serious the wound was that JFK had suffered. And Robert Kennedy answered back with a simple, no, I don't. At just about that moment, a special phone began to ring in the bedroom. It was a direct extension back to the White House. Bobby grabbed the phone. At first, he thought the caller was Clint Hill, who was the Secret Service agent that was charged with taking care of Jackie. But it turned out to be Taz Shepard, Naval Commander Tazewell Taylor Shepard, whose official title was military aid to the president. In the trauma that he was most certainly undergoing, Bobby Kennedy became confused as to who had called him. It was now that the real news came. For many of us who are old enough, we have either been on the telephone ourselves and received shocking personal news that way, or have been with someone who was on the telephone and receiving shocking news. Just like the Kennedys on that day, in that bedroom, that day, at that moment, as humans, the most dreaded news was now here. And Robert was now on the end of the receiver, hearing it fresh, And raw, the first time he would receive the crushing news of the death of his brother. And he would cry out, He's dead. Shortly, the three of them, Robert Kennedy and his wife Ethel and McCone, would begin to make their way downstairs. They had other guests there at Hickory Hill that day, some there already, and some already gathering because of the news. The small group in the living room included Robert Morgenthau a friend of Bobby's, and the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And as they got to the foot of the stairs, Robert would turn to the group that was gathered in the living room, watching the incoming news on television, and say one simple thing more. He died. Bobby quickly turned and headed toward the pool. He needed air and a momentary escape, and by the time he got to the pool... The phone extension out there began ringing. It was J. Edgar Hoover again. It was another short conversation. He would simply tell Bobby that the President was dead. It would be news that Bobby already knew. Hoover then hung up. Abruptly. It was a conversation that was devoid of any sort of humanity. He delivered the message and he delivered it with virtually no emotion at all. His voice, as the Attorney General himself recalled afterward, was not quite as excited as if he were reporting the fact that he had found a communist on the faculty of Howard University. Many people believe that in the JFK assassination, Hoover finally got what he wanted, and, as a result, he would no longer have to bow to bobby kennedy the conversation that day was curt at best in reality it was probably just plain cold hoover loathed the man that he had just given the information to and it was no never mind to him that he was telling the man that his brother was dead Certainly, all the leaders of the world were in a serious circumstance at that moment, and men in those roles, including Hoover, had heavy burdens at that very time. But at the end of the day, there was still time for humanity. But here, none was extended. For anyone who has ever been stunned by a terrible tragedy like this, there is a whole host of reactions that might be elicited by a person in Bobby Kennedy's position— It was his choice right then to fight the rising tide of emotions and at least at this moment to stay completely focused and composed, knowing that he was no longer by himself or just with Ethel and McCone. And so he began to try and drill down on things he could do at that moment and not to sink in his own agony and despair. That would most certainly come for him, and it did. And it took him to a deep depth of darkness and mourning. But not in those hours and days right after the assassination. He was like steel then. His first thoughts were to go to Dallas and be with Jackie and fly back with her. But events were moving too fast for that. In a terribly telling punctuation of the hate that Hoover felt for Robert Kennedy, in the nine months after the assassination of JFK, The nine months that Robert remained in his presidential cabinet role as the Attorney General of the United States, even though Hoover and Kennedy's office were both on the same floor at the Justice Department, Hoover never came down the hall to spend even a few minutes to offer a personal condolence to Robert Kennedy over the loss of his brother. Men are curious about these things, especially powerful men. And there are some men who have hearts of gold, but cannot fathom a discussion about such things. And so the absence of a conversation in those relationships does not constitute ill will or malice. But the circumstance was different here between Robert Kennedy and J. Edgar Hoover. The personal force field that prevented Hoover himself from making his way down to that office was born of a very visceral hatred for Robert Kennedy, and perhaps the Kennedys as a whole, but certainly Robert. In the wake of such tragedies, it may seem odd to some of us who live more common lives as to what things are in need of being attended to at that very moment. Bobby Kennedy, among the calls that he made that afternoon at Hickory Hill, was one made to McGeorge Bundy, who was the slain president's national security adviser they had a discussion about president kennedy's personal papers and it was determined that legally when a president dies in office his personal papers belong to his personal estate that is they are not presidential papers owned by the government based on this assessment bobby would quickly take actions to change the combination to the locks of at least one safe where documents were being held to this day Many of us wonder what was in that safe, or safes, and in those documents, and where are they today, either destroyed or packed deeply in the Kennedy's family attic, no doubt still under some form of lock and key, somewhere, if they exist at all. Meanwhile, back at the Pentagon, there were concerns building from General Maxwell Taylor. Taylor was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff with no one knowing exactly who or what had been initiated as part of the assassination, or whether or not this was a broader conspiracy and whether or not there was more coming from the Russians, well, this was all problematic to the military for sure. One of the most important things to do, the first order of business was to ensure that the satchel carrying the nuclear codes was safe. And he knew it would be because he knew he could count on the signal corps to put the bag in close proximity to the new commander-in-chief unfortunately johnson had not been briefed he knew that such a bag existed all right but he had no idea what the protocols were and if there had been an immediate need for some form of war strike some form of retaliation that required immediate action well, it was quite possible that the country's retaliatory arsenal strike could be held up until he had been led through instructions by Taz Shepard, instructions that he would be receiving for the first time under the most utmost of pressure and circumstances. Fortunately for all of us, and for the rest of the world, at that moment there was no need. We don't know what goes on inside the command centers and what protocols are exactly deployed by the superpowers in order to make the split-second decision of whether an international showdown is happening and underway. It's probably good that we don't. It's also probably essential. Nevertheless, the football that was being held by Ira Gearhart that day was a real thing. Even back then, and it was there safe and sound and within the clutches of both the dead president and the living one. Before the plane had taken off, those that were in the stateroom of Air Force One were updated with news that entailed an interesting turn of events. It was now being reported that the police had entered a theater in Dallas and arrested a man for the killing of a policeman, Officer J.D. Tippett. They were also learning that this man, that had been detained, was the only man missing from a head count that had been taken by the supervisor at the Texas School Book Depository, a building right there in Dealey Plaza where the shooting had taken place. These pieces were beginning to come together. There seemed to be a man that was clearly involved in the shooting. His name was Lee Harvey Oswald. Up in the cockpit of Air Force One, and before the plane had taken off, Andrews Air Force Base radioed, eager to find out the plane's plan. What is your estimated time of departure? In a few minutes, the crew responded. Do you have any passengers aboard? Full load. Forty-plus. Is Mrs. Kennedy aboard? Affirmative. They were ready to go, and that was happening just as the swearing-in ceremony was ending and the roar of the jet's engines was powering up. Not everyone on the plane got to see the swearing-in. There were 27 observers in the stateroom at the time of the ceremony, but there was a total of about 40 passengers on the plane's manifest. I say about 40 because after the fact, the manifest, which was hastily prepared and handwritten was found to be slightly inaccurate with at least one person listed on the manifest that was not on the plane, and at least one person not listed on the manifest that was on the plane. And, in addition, at the last minute, at least two of the presidential aides that were on the plane had been shuttled off and directed to go and get on Air Force Two, reportedly because of their hysterical emotional state but likely more due to the fact that Air Force One was not designed to have 40 people on it, and those folks were lower on the pecking order than others that needed truly to be there for the flight back. As we mentioned in the last episode, the three pool reporters that were high profile and on the flight that day were Merriman Smith, Charles Roberts, and Sid Davis they weren't finished with their work when the swearing-in was over in fact their work on the plane that day had just begun they would begin to try and piece together as much of the story of the assassination as they could at that moment with many of the eyewitness participants right there and captive on the plane and it was their job to sort through the delicate process of trying to talk to many of them and tease out the story in the midst of such heart-wrenching reflection that was going on all over the plane that was a tough task at best even though these three reporters had ongoing working relationships with many of the officials johnson would more than once come back to these three and ask if they were getting all the facts that they needed he was anxious to have the story out too as air force one got under way and began to race through the sky an odd but strangely predictable dynamic began to overtake all who were in its contained and confined space the kennedy people were congregating in the aft of the plane with the president's body and the Johnson people were occupying the rest of the plane. But it was a segregated flight, so to speak. And there, as they all settled in for the flight, the emotions of the Kennedy group would raise the temperature in the cabin. Some of them could hardly believe that Air Force One had been commandeered by the new president, and that the old one was now taking the trip back in a bronze casket. And that his closest confidants and trusted friends were not being given the opportunity to be alone with him for what would most certainly be their last, best private party together, only this time to celebrate a life well lived and all too short. Talk to a military leader in the middle of a military campaign when a soldier is lost. He'll tell you about the seriousness of maintaining your composure and your focus for the sake of your own safety, and the sake of the safety of the men and the women around you, and finally for the sake of the mission itself, even when that soldier is someone you have come to know and love. Those cool-headed and probably cold feelings and related actions and responses by the new Johnson team were undoubtedly an exacerbation to a highly tense and emotional environment on the plane. General Godfrey McHugh would be a poster boy for the rift that was present in the two camps. After refusing to talk to Johnson at Parkland about transportation and telling his aides that Johnson had his own plane, McHugh would later make the situation even worse for himself when he would tell Malcolm Kilduff, I have but one president and he is in that casket. He would be one of the first of President Kennedy's staff to be dismissed as Johnson took over the administration. In some ways, it was easy to understand the emotions that day. They were just raw. Throughout the entire flight, there was a burst of crying that continued and ran across a large number of people on the plane, like electricity jumping from one wire to another, There was probably no one on the staff that saw Kennedy more, and more often, than Evelyn Lincoln, his secretary. She was sobbing, and she was emblematic of all those close to the president on the plane, some of them letting go in similar fashion, others with just tears streaming down their faces, others with the agony of the moment written all over it. Behind the stateroom is where the casket was lashed and strapped in along the left-hand side of the airplane, and Jackie was sitting right there next to it. It was bright, shiny, and beautiful as it entered Parkland Hospital, but the process to get it to Love Field, including first the shoving match for the body that occurred in the hallway at Parkland, and then the ride to Love Field, followed by the not-so-slick carpenter work done by an axe that was needed to make it fit through the door of Air Force One, well. All of that had taken its toll. It was missing its handles, and it was chipped and scratched, and there were broken bolts where the handles had been. Soon the Kennedy clan would all get settled in the aft of the plane, surrounding Jackie and the coffin in an envelope of safety. There was Jackie, General McHugh, and the Irish Mafia trying to find peace in that crowded area. Beside that coffin, Jackie Kennedy began to cry for the first time. "'Oh, Kenny, what's going to happen?' she would ask Kenneth O'Donnell. In his madness, born of the moment, O'Donnell would answer, "'You want to know something, Jackie? I don't give a damn.' It hit her when he said that. She answered back, "'Oh, you're right. You know, you're right. Just nothing matters now but what you've lost.' dr berkeley the president's personal physician would soon join them in the rear of the plane as he progressed down the hallway he would happen to peer into the bedroom where jackie had taken her glove off it was there and dried stiff as a cast as though her hand were still in it dr berkeley would go and find mary gallagher one of jackie's ladies-in-waiting and point to the glove doing so with his own blood-stained arm put it away somewhere, he said. Don't crush it. Kennedy was Irish, and there were a lot of Irishmen on board that day, members of Kennedy's so-called Irish Mafia. Irish men don't lose their brethren without raising a glass to toast their beloved and mourn their loss. And today was no exception, even on an airplane. Even with the Johnson team just steps away. And with the events that had occurred, there was no doubt that a good, stiff drink might calm the souls of all who could partake. Ken O'Donnell rises to his feet. You know what I'm going to have, Jackie? I'm going to have a hell of a stiff drink. I think you should, too. What will I have? Jackie asks. I'll make it for you. I'll make you a scotch. Jackie purportedly had never had a scotch in her life, but she had one then, saying, now is as good a time as any to start. It was for anyone to believe that Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy had gotten through all those years with the Kennedy clan without even a sip of scotch. This would be the beginning of the pseudo-Irish wake. They would all partake, with Kilduff gulping down gin and with the rest consuming numerous bottles of scotch. Those Kennedy men would soon recall the Celtic songs loved by the man in the box. Filled with emotion, their thoughts and discussions began to turn to the funeral and how it should be organized, and how this should be the last best send-off to their old friend and to Jackie's husband and to the leader of the free world. They went on to discuss the history of the funerals of other U.S. presidents and began to discuss Lincoln's and it seemed to them that lincoln's funeral was the perfect point of reference and that meant parades and horses pulling black carriages and a riderless horse representing a fallen leader even at these early moments the idea of where to bury j f k and possibly adorning the grave with an eternal flame those thoughts were already under way The Irish mafia was, of course, from Boston, and it was their choice that such flame be lit in the beloved president's hometown, right next to the grave of his son, Patrick. As it would be said, father and son and city forever united. O'Donnell tells Jackie not to let anyone change her mind about that. But Jackie was not yet revealing what she was already thinking. Ultimately, she would reveal that the final resting place was to be Arlington, Virginia, at Arlington National Cemetery. It was the more elegant and fitting final place of rest for a man who had risked his life in World War II, suffering injuries that might have permanently disabled many, and instead he went on to become a United States Senator and then the President of the United States, and then finally giving his mortal life fully away to the nation as its president on November 22, 1963. Thank you for listening to episode 61 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.